and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the glory of the cross. Thank you that in the cross, our weakness could be made strength. That in the cross, our darkness could be made light. That in the cross, our hell could be made heaven. That in the cross, our diversity could be made unity. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the glory of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. United we stand, divided we fall. So said the ancient Greek storyteller Aesop over 2,000 years ago. United we stand, divided we fall. The words live on because they are true, and they are echoed by those who see its truth. Industrial pioneer Andrew Carnegie said, teamwork is the ability to work together toward a common vision. It is the fuel that allows common people to attain uncommon results. Our very own first president, George Washington, warned that the most serious threat to our democracy comes from disunity within the country rather than from interference from outside. The legendary football coach Vince Lombardi said, individual commitment to a group effort, that is what makes a teamwork, a company work, a society work, a civilization work. United we stand, divided we fall. This, of course, is no different than what Jesus Christ himself said in Mark 3.25. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Division begets instability. On the other hand, unity is closely linked hand-in-hand hand with stability. For over thousands of years, one truth has remained clear. Unity is integral to the health of any body of people, whether it be a government, a country, an athletic team, and most certainly, the church. Unity can make or break the local church. The church is meant to be a unified body. 
we are meant to be marked by unity. Now that much is clear, that much is obvious. But let me take it a step further. The church is not only meant to be a unified body, the church is meant to be a diverse body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Many parts, one body. One body, many parts. The church is to be diverse and yet at the same time united. The pattern of the New Testament church is diversity in the midst of unity. Unity in the midst of diversity. Not one without the other. Not either or, but both and. Both unity and diversity. But the question is, why? Why did God ordain his church to be a unity in diversity? Why is the divine design of the church to be a unity in diversity? The answer to this question goes far beyond ecclesiology. The answer to this question goes far beyond humanity. The answer to this question is not a socioeconomic issue. It's not a racial issue. It's not an educational issue. It's not a cultural issue. The answer to this question is rooted in the triune nature of God himself. The church is meant to be a unity in diversity because the Trinity is a unity in diversity. The church is meant to be a unity in diversity because our God, our triune God, is a unity in diversity. This morning, we will explore three aspects of unity and diversity, and each of these three, as we will see, is rooted in none other than the Trinity himself. So first, let us look at the Trinitarian reality of unity and diversity. The Trinitarian reality of unity and diversity. And let us set some foundation before we begin. Now it is very important to grasp at the outset that how you understand unity and diversity is based on your view of God. Societies and religions reflect their view of God. If God is many, then diversity is ultimate. If God is one, then unity is ultimate. Let's start with polytheism, the thought that God is many. Polytheism emphasizes diversity. Many gods emphasizes variety, distinctions, differences. If God is many and not one God, if God is many persons, then society reflects God as many. For instance, in Hinduism, there is a hierarchy of thousands of gods. From the top down, 
And if you're a Hindu, you know, just by nature, just by having lived in that culture and in that religion, you know the exact hierarchy of hundreds and thousands of gods. There is a distinct hierarchy. Now, this hierarchy, this diversity, is reflected in the Indian caste system. The caste system in India is a built-in societal framework meant to impose diversity. It is segregation. It is disunion. It is division. It is partition. And at its core, the caste system in India is a spiritual entity. It is rooted in the Hindu view of the hierarchy of the gods. Divided gods emphasizes a divided society. On the other hand, monotheism emphasizes unity. Monotheism, the thought that God is one, emphasizes unity. Let's look at the example of Islam. As you well know, the defining feature of Islam is that Allah is one. Islam believes that Allah is one God as one person. One God as one person, and that is important. If God is one God as one person, then unity is preeminent. Unity is paramount. Unity is ultimate. Diversity cannot be celebrated. In fact, diversity is shunned. Islam is all about assimilation, bringing everyone into the unified whole. It's all about unity. So, for instance, when you become a Muslim, you are given a new Muslim name. Lou Alcindor became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali. In the name of unity, your name is taken away from you and you are given a new Muslim name. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, Hispanic, Asian, Middle Eastern. If you become a Muslim, you will have your name taken away from you and you will be given a new identity, a new name. The emphasis is unity. Moreover, Muslims all perform the exact same prayers at the exact same time. They chant the exact same words at the exact same time of day, and they bow the exact same number of times, no matter where you are on the face of the earth. It's the same words, the same motions, the same ritual for everybody. The emphasis is unity. During the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, called Hajj, all Muslims, by compulsion, wear the same dress, long white robes called Iram. They all look the same. There's no variety. There are no differences. There's no distinctions. Everybody looks exactly the same. Not a single person stands out. The point is, you are not your own. You are part of a united whole. There is unity without diversity. Now, don't take that from me. The website about Islam.net confirms exactly this. The essence of gathering with others on the same place and doing the same actions, praying in a similar way and asking forgiveness and blessings from Allah together is to inculcate unity. 
discipline, and brotherhood among the Muslims. When a multitude of the people stays and prays together for many days in the same dress, it creates harmony and discipline. It is appreciated worldwide how Muslims show great discipline following the same dress code and pattern of worship. So just as Allah is one and unity is ultimate, so Islam is one and unity is ultimate. This is unity at the expense of diversity. This is not just unity, this is uniformity. Everyone looks exactly the same. Everyone does the exact same things. Now what is apparent then is that your view of God affects your understanding of unity and diversity. If your God is many persons, diversity is ultimate. If your God is one person, then unity is ultimate. But if you have one God in three persons, a united yet diverse God, a triune God, then unity and diversity harmonize. Then unity and diversity can coexist. Unlike any other God, the Christian God, the triune God, the Trinity, is a cosmic display of unity and diversity coexisting together. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, is united. He is the standard of unity. There is one God and only one. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is the foundational confession of Christianity. There is one God. We are distinct monotheists. And yet... Our God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God, yet three distinct persons. The three persons of the Trinity point to diversity. The fact that God is one points to unity. And when they come together, the Trinity exists as a unity in diversity. And this is what we see in the New Testament with regard to the people of God. Just as the church is called to reflect God in its holiness, just as the church is called to reflect God in grace and compassion, just as the church is called to reflect God in justice, so the church is also called to reflect God in our unity in diversity. In the New Testament, the church reflects the Trinity itself. Our diversity reflects the three persons in the Godhead, whereas our unity reflects that God is one. This leads us to our second point. The Trinitarian reflection of church diversity. The Trinitarian reflection of church diversity. The church was designed to be a diverse people. Galatians 3, 26 to 28 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the emphasis of this passage is diversity and unity. We are unified. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all baptized into Christ. We are all sons of Abraham. We are all sons of God. And yet, in this unity, there exists a profound diversity. Let's look at the kind of diversity we have. First, the church of God is diverse in ethnicity. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You have to understand, at the time of Paul's writing, the dividing line between Jews and Greeks could not have been any deeper. There was no more profound divergence than Jew and Gentile. The dividing line between Jews and Gentiles ran painfully deep. It ran deeper than the dividing line between blacks and whites in Alabama in the 1960s. And I do not say that lightly. And yet, in Christ, the barrier of the dividing wall has come down. And Jew and Gentile can now exist as one. Secondly, the church of God is diverse in gender. Paul says there is neither male nor female. Now, if you were a Jew in first century Israel, and you walked into this room, just came off the street and walked through the door and walked into this room, you could immediately tell that this was not a first century Jewish synagogue. How could you tell right away? How could you tell that this was not a first century Jewish synagogue? Because if it were, the only persons sitting in this room would be men. The women would be out of sight. The women would be nowhere to be seen. The church revolutionized the place of women. Just the fact that we are all sitting here side by side with one another, male and female, brother and sister, is a revolutionary concept founded in the church of the living God. Gender no longer makes you more sanctified than somebody else. Gender no longer makes you more saved than somebody else. You are all, all of you, brothers and sisters, equally loved by God in Jesus Christ. The church is diverse in gender. Thirdly, the church is diverse in personality. Look at the kinds of people that Jesus recruited to be the foundation of the church, the apostles. If you do a character study of the apostles, you will find that they could not have been a more diverse group of people. Let's just take one example. For instance, Nathaniel. Nathaniel is who you might call a superstitious person. Some might even call him gullible. Some might even call him naive. In John 1.48, all it took for Nathanael to believe was for Jesus to tell him that he saw him sitting under a fig tree. And Jesus says to him, that's all it took for you to believe, Nathanael? Stick with me, and I will show you greater miracles than these. Nathanael is quick to believe. But Thomas, on the other hand, we all know Thomas, and we all know his nickname, Doubting Thomas. Thomas is slow to believe. He's a cynic. He's a skeptic. 
He said famously in John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is a skeptic. He's the exact opposite of Nathaniel. They are two totally different personality types. And yet here they are called in one body, coming together for the cause of Christ. Fourthly, the church of God is diverse in political views. Within the 12 apostles, you had two men with opposite political views when it came to Rome. Matthew, of course, was the tax collector, an employee of the Roman Empire. He was considered disloyal to Israel and loyal to Rome. He was considered a traitor. And then you had Simon the Zealot, Loyal to Israel to a fault. The Zealots were a group of political activists who were against Roman rule through and through. In fact, there are some evidences in early writings that the Zealots behaved like modern-day terrorists. They would go through crowded public marketplaces and secretly stab Roman soldiers with small hidden knives. They were so against Roman rule. And yet here they are, two political enemies, coming together as foundations of the church of God. Fifthly, the church of God is diverse in social class. Paul says, bond or free. The gospel is the solution to social discrimination. The gospel obliterates the caste system. The gospel comes and blows apart the invisible lines drawn by societal strata. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, slave or free, in the early church, you could walk into a Lord's Day corporate worship and you could have standing side by side with one another, a slave and a master, singing hymns together, praising God together, praying together side by side. In fact, there is a possibility that a slave could even be an elder of a church exercising authority over a master who is a regular member of the church. That is unheard of in the secular world. Such is the power of the gospel. The gospel destroys these social distinctions. The church is designed to be a diverse people. Now this begs the question, again, why? Why does God stress the salvation of a diverse people? Why does God desire that the church be a diversity? Three answers. First, we need diversity in the church to bring God the greatest glory. John Piper says, The beauty and power of praise that will come to God, come to the Lord, from diversity of the nations are greater than the beauty and power that would come to him if the chorus of the redeemed were culturally uniform. The reason for this can be seen in the analogy of a choir. More depth of beauty is felt from a choir that sings in parts than from a choir that sings only in unison. Unity in diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than the unity of uniformity. 
When I was in Kenya, I had the privilege of teaching at a seminary. And according to my African brothers, they told me that I was the first of three things for them. I was the first American they had ever met. The rest of their professors came from Europe. I was the first Asian that they had ever met. They'd only seen Asians on TV or in movies. And thirdly, I was the first time that they ever heard the word gonna, as in, I'm gonna go here, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna say this. They said, we have never heard this word before. <laughs> and it occurred to me that as I was worshiping with them on the Lord's day, that one day in heaven, I will be standing side by side with my African brethren, worshiping God. On that great day, when we gather around the throne to sing praises to the Lamb who was slain, we will be singing in a harmony. We will be singing in a symphony. We won't all just be singing the same note. No, we will be singing in parts. We will be singing a harmony of praise to the Lamb who was slain. And this will make our praise even more glorious than if we were all singing the same note. This will make our praise even more glorious than if we were culturally uniform. You see, if God had decided to save a culturally uniform people, the same people from the same race, the same culture, the same educational background, the same societal background, he would still be glorious. But if God could save and unite a disparate mass of people from every tribe, tongue, race, color group, culture, economic background, societal background, educational background. He is all the more glorious. And so it is. God has ordained that the diversity of the church would give him maximum glory for ages to come. Secondly, we need the diversity of the church to show the superiority of the gospel to all other religions. Let me ask you one simple question. Why was the gospel so successful in the ancient world? I mean, we've been hearing First Peter. The church was persecuted not just persecuted, but at times severely persecuted. You have Nero. And after Nero, you don't want to know what comes with Domitian. The church was severely persecuted. So much so that Justin Martyr had to say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, despite this persecution, why did Christianity spread like wildfire? throughout the Roman Empire? Why did Christianity spread through Europe, Africa, and Asia in the early world? It was because the gospel celebrates diversity. The Yale church historian, Lamin Sana, says in an extended quote, a main reason for Christianity's success is to be found in its absolute inclusiveness. More than any other of its competitor religions, it attracted all races and classes. 
The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. And even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. The philosophers of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. It was one of the charges against Christianity that it drew the lowly and uneducated multitude, that its essential teaching was so simple that anybody could understand. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in the society. And Christianity, too, is for both sexes. And women were active in its work, while two of its main competitor religions were almost exclusively for men. Finally, the mystery religions were mainly for the rich. Initiation was very expensive. There was no other religion that took in all groups and all stratas of society. The one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation, then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. The gospel is superior to all other religions because in the gospel, it has the power to save all those who believe, anyone who believes, each and everyone who believes, no matter who you are, where you are, or where you're from. Thirdly, we need the diversity of the church to help us to see our blind spots. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we are all a product of our cultural background. We are all a product of our diverse experiences. We are all a product of the family that raised us, the culture we grew up in, the education we've had. We are all a product of our ethnicity, our background, our heritage. This means that we all interpret life through our own experience. We read life through our diverse experiences. We read life through our cultural position. We even read the Bible through our cultural position. We are biased. And the thing is, we are blind to our biases. We are biased and we do not even know that we are biased. So we must not ignore our cultural bias. We must realize that our cultural bias truly exists. And we must realize that the diversity of the church is meant to help us to see our biases. When I was in seminary, I remember sitting around the lunch table one time with a group of men. And there were a few of us from California. And we had one man from the south, Kentucky, and another man from Northern Ireland. And we were talking about accents. We were talking about the southern accent versus the northern Irish accent. And then my friend from Northern Ireland said this. He said, you know who has the thickest accent? People from California. That's how he said it. And I said, without even thinking about it, I said, I don't have an accent. 
And he looked at me and he said, yes, you do. I betrayed my own blindness. I didn't even realize that I had a Californian accent. And I would never have known that I had a Californian accent if it were not for my brother from Northern Ireland. I needed someone foreign to California to point out to me that I actually do have an accent. We do not and cannot see our own cultural blind spots without the diversity of the church. Tim Keller says, cultural experience and background in some cases makes you blind to the gospel implications, and in some cases makes you clear-eyed about the implications of the gospel. Everybody is standing in some culture no matter how hard you try. Your position is limited and you can only see part of the glory of the gospel. We have to have each other. Here's the great irony. Our cultural differences are a huge problem and our cultural differences are the solution. Only together will we grasp the kingdom of God and the glory of God. This leads us to our third and last point, the Trinitarian requirement of church unity. The Trinitarian requirement of church unity. Now, if you read the New Testament with an eye towards unity, you will be amazed. The sheer volume of verses and passages devoted to the subject of unity is no less than staggering. By my count, The topic of unity is directly addressed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Peter, and 1 John. You say, well, that's pretty much the whole New Testament. And that's the point. In John 17.11, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Again, John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Notice, Jesus prays for a very specific type of unity, the kind of unity as it is rooted in the Godhead the kind of unity as it is reflected in the Trinity. We are to be one just as our God is one. We are to be united just as our triune God is united. So let's look at Paul's exhortation to church unity in Ephesians 4, which we read. First, church unity is built on the foundation of doctrine. Unity starts with therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, in light of the doctrine discussed in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, preserve the unity of the Spirit. Our unity is founded upon the common doctrine of the gospel. We cannot have unity without first having doctrinal solidarity. We cannot be united in God until we first agree on who God is. We need to have doctrinal unity. J.C. Ryle said, unity without the gospel is a worthless 
unity. Doctrine forms the foundation of true Christian unity. Secondly, church unity should be a priority in the Christian life. In Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul gives us practical ways to live out the doctrine we heard in chapters 1 through 3. He says, this is how you are to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, how do you do that? Here's a list. Now, if I were to ask you to make a list of ways that you can live out the gospel in your practical Christian living, what would you put at the top of your list? What would be the priority in your list? Okay, I've got to make a list of how to walk worthy of the gospel. What's the first thing you would put in your list? I would venture to guess that most of us would put something like personal holiness. Personal holiness is the foremost priority in gospel living. And then you'd expect a list of things not to do. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Or perhaps there's a list of things we should do. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, meditate on God's word. Or perhaps if it's not personal holiness, maybe you would put at the list, top of your list, family holiness. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, submit to your husband. Children, obey your parents. But that's not what the Holy Spirit lists first. The first priority in the list of gospel living is not personal holiness, that comes later in chapter 4. It's not family holiness, that comes in chapter 5. The first priority in the list of gospel living is the corporate unity of the church. Let that shock you and let that change you. The unity of the local church. The unity of the local church should be a priority in our Christian walks. How many of us have ever thought that that should be a priority in our Christian walks? John Piper says, It is biblically illogical to think we can live a life worthy of the gospel and be indifferent to Christian unity. Unity must be a priority. Thirdly, church unity is a creation of God which we are called to preserve. Ephesians 4.3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. In other translations, Paul says, maintain the unity. Now notice the language, preserve, maintain, keep. There is a difference between creating unity and maintaining unity. There is a difference between producing unity and preserving unity. We do not create unity. God creates unity. God the Spirit creates unity. That is why it is called the unity of the Spirit. There is a divine and human interplay between church unity the divine action is to create unity, the human action is to maintain it. In a positional sense, the church has already been bestowed unity. We are called upon to preserve it. Now, as you know, 
I have two daughters, Eva and Ellie. Eva and Ellie are organically, genetically united. They are united in that they have the same father, the same mother. They are part of the same family. They did not create this unity. They were bestowed this unity. They were given this unity. They did not produce it. It was given to them by the fact that they are a part of the same genetic bloodline. So in this sense, they are positionally united. But practically, and I know this would never happen to any of your children, but practically they fight and they argue and sometimes they bicker. And I have to remind them to be kind to one another, to love one another. I have to remind them to be united. And I have on occasion said to them that you are the only sisters you will ever have. Possibly. <laughs> only God knows. That you have only other, one other sister in this world. Act like sisters. Act like sisters. I am calling upon them to walk worthy of their status as sisters. They have already obtained unity organically and genetically, but they need to maintain unity practically and experientially. Likewise, brothers and sisters, in the church, whether we like it or not, whether we are kind to each other or not, we are positionally united organically. You don't get to choose who is in the family of God. God chooses who is in his family. But we are called upon to walk in unity practically and experientially with one another. Act like sisters. Act like brothers. Act like children of God. Fourthly, church unity is a responsibility for all Christians, including you. In this passage, to whom is Paul speaking? Is he speaking to elders? Well, it's their responsibility. Obviously, they're elders. It's the responsibility of the elders. No. Is he speaking to deacons? Well, if it's not the elders, most certainly it's got to be the deacons. It's their job. Is he speaking to the care group leaders of the ancient Ephesian church? Well, clearly, it's their responsibility. No. Read it again. Verse 1. I implore you, plural, you, collective, you, the whole of the Ephesian church, and by implication, you, the whole of Cornerstone Bible Church, you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Who has been called? All Christians. Every single Christian who has ever lived has been called by Jesus Christ. You have been called salvifically. You have been called effectually. You have been called to be a child of God. Paul is addressing all Christians. All of us who have experienced chapters 1 through 3 are to practice chapter 4. Church unity is everyone's responsibility, including you. The funny thing about church unity is it's got to be practiced by every single Christian in the church or else we will never have it. Fifthly, and last, church unity involves not giving offense and also not taking offense. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now in this verse, we see both of these concepts. The first two words refer to not giving offense. I am humble. I am gentle towards others. The idea is giving. I do not give offense. The second two words refers to not taking offense. I treat others with patience and tolerance. I put up with a lot. I am patient towards other people. I am not easily offended. I don't take offense. Don't give offense. Don't take offense. Don't be offensive and don't be offended. Now, so many people work on not giving offense. But we must realize that we must equally work on not taking offense. In fact, I dare say, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it is precisely those people who work so hard at not giving offense that are the most easily offended. Well, if that were me, I would have never done that. I would know not to do that. If I was in that position, I would never have said that. I mean, that person should know better. If that sounds familiar, beware of a legalist within. We must work at not giving offense, but we must also work at not taking offense. John 11.52 says that Jesus would die for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Brethren, Jesus died to make us one. Jesus died not just to save us, but he died to unite us. The gospel is not just about salvation, it is about unification. So if you ignore church unity, you are ignoring one of the major implications of the gospel. When we are united, we shine forth the love of Christ and the power of the gospel. When I was a sophomore in college, I went on my first short-term missions trip. My college fellowship sent a missions team to Guadalupe, Mexico. It's a small town outside of Ensenada. And for one week, we helped a struggling church reach out to the community. One of the members of that church was with us everywhere that week. She was our host. She served as our primary translator for street evangelism, for home visitations, for vacation Bible school. She was with us for every meal, every outreach, every activity, every game we played. And I have to testify that through an exhausting week of ministry, our team had an incredible supernatural sense of unity. We had an incredible sense of camaraderie, an overwhelming camaraderie. There was no fighting or bickering or arguing. There was a lot of joy, a lot of laughter, and there was significant bonding. At the end of our week of missions, we had a night of testimonies. And at the end of the night, our host got up in front of everyone, and I still remember. She had tears in her eyes. She could barely speak. 
She said, I did not know that Christians could love one another as I have seen you all love each other this week. Thank you for loving me as you have loved one another. Brothers and sisters, the unity of the church is a profound testimony to the power of Christ. Do we have that unity? Do we have that testimony? How are you helping or hurting the unity of this church? Brethren, we have been given a gift. We are united in one spirit. We are united in one body. Let us act like it. Let us live like it. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we remember that when Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed for us, his church, prayed even in his omniscient mind for Cornerstone Bible Church, he prayed that we would be perfected in unity. Help us, Lord, as we are weak and frail. Help us through the power of the cross, through the power of the Spirit, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.